A Book for Disruptors. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Brad Feld, author, venture capitalist, co-founder of Techstars, and partner at the Foundry Group. Welcome back, Brad. Thanks, Tanya. Great to be here. Give our audience a quick summary of your professional background and accomplishments, if you will. Sure. Uh, I'm a partner at a venture capital firm called Foundry Group. Uh, we're based in Boulder, Colorado, but we invest all around the U.S., uh, we have about a little bit over $3 billion under management. Um, we invest in high growth tech companies. Uh, we also invest 25% of our capital in other early stage venture capital funds, seed and pre-seed based uh, 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 funds that are investing in those types of businesses. And then we typically do later financings. Uh, I'm also a co-founder of Techstars, uh, which today is a, a global business. Uh, we run uh, roughly 40 accelerators a year invest in about 400 companies a year at the pre-seed stage. Uh, prior to that, I uh, was an entrepreneur. I ran uh, a business from 1987 to 1993 uh, that I sold to a public company, been the founder of a number of tech companies, but also been an investor from 1994 forward. Your newest book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors just came out. So why yeah. this book? Why now? couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, I, it was a project that I did with my very first business partner in that first company, Dave Jilk. Uh, he and I founded a company which was very creatively named Fell Technologies. Uh, rule number 721 of a business is do not name it after yourself because when things go wrong, they call for Mr. Feld, not for Mr. Jilk. Um, so uh, uh, we have worked on a number of things over the years and 38 years later, we're still best friends. Uh, about Seven years ago, Dave got very interested in Nietzsche as a philosopher. He'd been reading a bunch of different philosophy just as an avocation. And we would spend weekends together at uh, our place in the mountains with uh, my wife, Amy, and his wife, Maureen. And he remembers this moment where he's reading something and he, he says a Nietzsche quote out loud to me as I'm reading whatever I'm reading. And he says, does that sound like entrepreneurship, Brad? And my response to him, what he remembers is me kind of saying, mm-hmm, and continuing to read. And over the next couple of years, we bounced around some Nietzsche quotes. And uh, he went very, very deep in Nietzsche, who's a very misunderstood, but very important philosopher. I started to become interested and read some Nietzsche philosophy. And uh, we found that it was incredibly relevant for entrepreneurship, not in terms of telling you what you should do, but causing you to think about specific types of issues. The other thing that was an inspiration uh, is uh, uh, a friend, Ryan Holiday, uh, who has written a number of books about Stoicism and really brought Stoic philosophy and Stoicism to contemporary business, contemporary leaders, entrepreneurs. And I loved uh, his book, um, uh, all of his books. Um, the Ego is the Enemy, I think, is my favorite of his books. And along the way, probably four or five years ago, he wrote a book called The Daily Stoic. So it was 365 Stoic quotes from like Marcus Aurelius or Seneca. And then a one page interpretation by Ryan of what that quote meant and how it applied to contemporary life. Um, and had, had a business that these were the things that sort of as Dave and I came together, we said, man, there's so much here in Nietzsche that can be provocative in terms of how entrepreneurs think about what they're doing. That what Ryan did for Stoicism uh, let's try to do for Nietzsche. What is it about today's entrepreneurial disruptors that Nietzsche would find interesting or important? 
Well, Nietzsche was himself a disruptor. He was really the crossover point between classical philosophy and contemporary philosophy. Um, and in that, uh, you know, when we talk about this in the book, like at some level, Nietzsche was very disdainful of business, but we think Nietzsche would have loved entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs approached business in a lot of the same ways that he approached philosophy, which is he was not an extension of the old. He was very provocative and challenging things and constantly like saying things that might or might not uh, uh, be right and certainly weren't necessarily the conventional wisdom as he tried to work out his ideas. Entrepreneurs are trying things that might or might not work. And in fact, most entrepreneurial journeys are very aggressive series of experiments, many of which fail. And the trick is to learn from each experiment and then run new experiments. So in some ways, the, the behavioral dynamics of what Nietzsche was doing in his time, the late 1800s, right, is a very different time in our society. The norms were different, cultural dynamics were different, uh, how we dealt with society was different. The modern corporation hadn't been invented yet. Um, you know, democracy as we know it today was still in a very highly evolutionary state. I mean, it was just, you know, he was alive during the time, for example, in the US of, of the Civil War. I mean, he was German, but, uh, and actually he was German born, but he gave up his German citizenship pretty early in his life and became of, of uh, I don't remember what the right word is, but he wasn't of any state. He didn't belong to any country. So he did things that really challenged the norm, which again is at the essence of an entrepreneur. Tell us a story from the book that you found especially compelling. Well, there's there's lots lots of them uh, that are fun. I, I'll uh, I'll read a quote from today uh, from a blog post I wrote, and the way the book works is um, we uh, we write a quote. Or we, we find a Nietzsche quote that we like, and we've got 52 of them, one for each week. So the goal is don't read the book from beginning to end, just sort of read it as you feel like reading it. So you go find something interesting to you. We then interpret it in modern day English. So the quotes that Nietzsche has have written are quite, in some ways, quite chewy. Some of them are pretty easy to process, but a lot of them, I mean, I had to read five or six times the first time I read it just to like get my mind around what it, the translation was. So we then do it in modern day English. We then have a two to three page essay about the quote and how it relates to entrepreneurship from our perspective. Again, not in a, here's what you should do, but trying to provoke thought. And then for about two thirds of them, we have narratives from entrepreneurs, another two or three page story. So the one from today is from a chapter of ours titled Monsters. And what you'll see is this applies to entrepreneurs, but it also applies very, very broadly. Uh, the, the Nietzsche quote uh, in the translation is, he who fights with monsters should be careful, lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. Um, so, you know, we wrote a couple of pages on it. And then we had that experience, reason that it's a blog post today, uh, point people at felt.com. Uh, look for monsters. I won't repeat the blog post, but the essence of it was um, the book came out, the interview uh, day that we're doing this, the book came out yesterday. And so there's a lot of promotion around the book. Um, and it, it got Amazon bestseller status in some categories. 
And uh, our publisher was very excited, reached out this morning and made graphics for us that says, you know, big, you know, book, Amazon, number one bestseller. Except for the categories it was a bestseller and that it achieved number one uh, were categories like existentialism, existentialism or philosophy reference. Now, these are categories that have very few readers, right? Or they don't have a lot of books sold. So like, it's not too hard to become number one in philosophy reference on Amazon. Um, and, uh, you know, we were moving up the, the charts on like entrepreneurial management. I think we were number two on that for a little while, but like, it didn't feel great to Dave to like promote this idea that we were number one when, yeah, we sort of were, but what? So we ended up having a conversation about it. Everybody gets to decide what their ethics are. There's a lot of people whose ethics would be, oh, well, you're number one in some obscure category. So of course you're the best. Our reaction was, huh, that doesn't feel great to us. You know? And so we, we discussed it. And uh, it turns out um, that uh, you know, we decided that we were uh, actually having this discussion about ethics, which was in this essence of monsters. Like we have not become uh, the monster. Right. You know, if you go back to the quote, he who fights with monsters should be careful lest he become a monster. And if thou gaze long into the abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. So our ethical boundary where both Dave and I drew it was um, not to exaggerate our success just for the sake of getting more credibility. Now, we ended up writing a blog post together. I posted this morning. Ironically, during that period of time, we then became number one category in business management science and business technology innovation, which are you know, kind of more relevant category leaders. But there's a lot of stuff like that in the book. We're not saying your ethics should be this. We're saying, think about it and think about how you're interacting with other people. And what does that mean for where you're going and where you become. And in business and in life, we know many, many people who the longer they fight with the monsters, the more they become the monster, the more they are in situations with ethical quandaries, um, the harder it is for them to maintain a clear ethical focus unless they reject, you know, and draw, draw a clear line. It sounds like you and Dave have been working well together for a really long time. Dave Jilk, your, your co-author, how did you split the duties for the book? I mean, how, do, how does that kind of collaboration happen? Yeah, co being a co-author is interesting. Uh, I've done uh, a number of books now, and uh, most of them uh, have had co-authors. Two have not, uh, but the majority have had co-authors. And everyone is different. Um, when I wrote a book with my wife, Amy Batchelor, called Startup Life, and the, the subtitle is Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur, we wrote that book, I think it came out in 2014, very, very different division of duties and approach than what Dave and I had. Um, I would say uh, that Dave did much of the primary work here. Um, uh, he went much, much deeper on Nietzsche. Um, we bounced around quotes together and gave sort of feedback on it as we worked it out. Um, he spent a lot of time sort of figuring out which quotes made sense uh, to include in the book. And then we just started writing. And a lot of the writing initially, I would say, was either writing that he did, which then I heavily edited, um, or writing that was sort of collaborative early. And then over time, as we got our writing style and the book format 
organized. And a lot of that was feedback from some early readers back and forth between the two of us. I would say that he started to write um, certain stretches and then there'd be certain pieces that I wrote um, around the, the, the analysis. And then we went through, we, we had a lot to work with for a while. So we went through a very iterative editing cycle. I would also say it's very episodic. I'd put him in the category of being extremely patient on this one because there were multiple points in time where I got distracted or busy with something else and he kept the project moving. And then even when it sort of felt like it stalled, you know, I felt like, okay, I've got some time to work on this. And then I didn't really have time to work on it because of other priorities. He was very patient with it. Um, and I think in the end, the work product shows that. Um, I always read the book after it's published in hard copy or in paperback or whatever. I always, a physical form. So the, we got our first copies a week ago and I, I uh, over the weekend, I, I laid down and read it. And when you're editing a book online and editing and editing and changing and moving stuff around, like you just, you, you lose track of it. And then when you're done, you have to edit it like 15 more times. Like your brain loses the picture of the whole book, at least for me. So I sat down and read it and I finished it. And my reaction was very enthusiastic. Like it, it, it felt like we had really as one written the book, right? It didn't feel like here was some stuff Dave wrote, here was some stuff Brad wrote. It didn't have this sort of herky-jerky pace through it. We had reorganized it a few times. The way we ended up organizing it was into five sections. And, and those five sections, you know, each have a bunch of chapters in them. Uh, and specifically, I mean, we, we, we talked about the sections a lot. They are, entrepreneurs will recognize them. It's strategy, culture, free, spirit, free spirits, a key phrase in, in Nietzsche, leadership, uh, and tactics. And, and sort of as, we, as I read through the book, it also flowed from those. It didn't feel like, oh, there's an arbitrary grouping of things, um, which we worked hard at. But again, the final product is what it is. So um, I would just end by saying it was a real joy to do this project with Dave. You know, we, we worked together as partners for seven years where we talked and, you know, had office next to each other and saw each other all the time. Over the years since then, that was 93. Since then, we've worked together on projects, but not that intensely. This was a real enjoyable, emotionally gratifying uh, collaboration. We've established that being an author is not foreign to you. This is something you have a lot of experience with. So what was the most important lesson that you learned from either maybe the writing process or from the research that you did for this book? Well, before I started this, I knew almost nothing about Nietzsche. And um, I had a couple of things in my head about Nietzsche that were just wrong, um, that were sort of, uh, I would say, colloquialisms that people talk about. You know, one of the things that you often hear is that Nietzsche, you know, was, um, uh, was a Nazi or, you know, the, the, the Nazis embraced Nietzsche. And like the backstory there is quite interesting when you actually uh, go deeper on it. And not only was uh, Nietzsche not a Nazi, but he rejected uh, all aspects of it. And he was very negative about uh, nationalism and German nationalism. Turns out his sister was a Nazi. And when Nietzsche died, uh, and he died in uh, uh, 1900, um, his sister, uh, so think about the time frame, right? 1900 was well before 
um, uh, the rise of the Third Reich, his sister got control of his estate and all his writings. And so you could, you, to say that Nietzsche was a Nazi is just a false statement. To, to say that the Nazis co-opted Nietzsche's writing, sort of true. Uh, uh, to say that his sister took some of Nietzsche's ideas, twisted them in such a way so that they conformed uh, to the Third Reich philosophy and then embedded that within would be a true statement, right? So sort of going deeper on so many of these things. And it's part of the thing that's so fascinating about him is he really was his own thinker in this sort of, you know, 1860, 1870, 1880 uh, timeframe uh, that, that, you know, he was writing. He also, um, uh, it's a little unclear sort of what happened uh, late in life. He was always sort of infirmed and sickly um, and then he, 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 be, he went crazy. Like it's unclear whether he became an invalid, whether he truly went crazy, had a, you know, some kind of psychotic break. There's some rumors about syphilis, but it doesn't matter. Like he literally became incapable of doing what he was doing for the last decade of his life. So sort of as you dig into that and then you peel back and you look at the remarkable amount of stuff that he produced in a relatively short period of time and the way he produced it. Um, versus this sort of very surface level uh, energy around Nietzsche that some of it is positive and inspiring for so many different lines of thought. Sometimes people categorize it as very negative because of whatever association they've captured. In some ways, it's a lot like what we try. It's a meta of the book. Like if you, if you just sort of read the headline, you're going to miss the whole thing. And uh, instead, you need to read the headline, but then study what's actually going on beyond the headline and try to understand what the headline's saying. Uh, it's not just the quote, but it's what he's trying to say with the quote and what's beyond that. In the end of the book, we have a section, don't believe everything uh, that you read about Nietzsche or don't believe everything that you know about Nietzsche. And we, we deconstruct a number of these topics um, and, and do it as a research paper. So it's heavily footnoted um, to sort of show argument. We're not trying to be Nietzsche scholars. We're not trying to do any of that. We're not trying to make a point about you know, what is where, but we're trying to bring to the surface the valuable pieces of it. And, and that was powerful to me because I try, I didn't study philosophy in college. I mean, I've read a little bit, like I think most people in college, but I, I would say, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is probably the closest I get, right, to, to having gone on an escapade through philosophical thought in a contemporary way. This was really powerful. And against the backdrop of what I've done, you know, by reading all of Ryan Holiday's stuff around Stoicism, um, it's inspiring not just to think about it for the sake of thinking about it, but to figure out how to apply some of these well-worn ideas or disruptive new ideas to the current moment. Brad Feld, venture capitalist, co-founder of Techstars, partner at the Foundry Group, and co-author of his most recent book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors. Thanks for joining us, Brad. If somebody wants to get a copy of your new book, what's the best way they can do that? Amazon is the easiest place. It's in uh, Kindle, paperback and hardback and coming soon in Audible. Uh, there's also a very simple website, uh, weeklydisruptor.com that points to it and gives a little more background on the book. Um, those are probably the best places. Thanks again, Brad. Tanya, as always, thanks for having me. Of course. And find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on ZDNet, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or 
at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.